Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Now, Thomas, we just finished a fantastic interview with a guest that I've wanted to talk to for a very long time, Anastasia Marchenkova. She's an expert in quantum computing and its applications. What were the big takeaways uh, from the conversation for you? Well, certainly that uh, quantum computing does not change the speed of light. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was very clear about it not enabling faster than light communication. She wanted that clearly communicated. Yeah. Yeah, but when you think about it, though, they figured out how to slow light down. So I think I think it could be faster than slow light. Uh, <laughs> we should have asked her that. She's the one that she's she's got the physics background. I I don't pretty, think either. Crazy way to think about things. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it was really great. I thought she had a really good viewpoint on the near-term economic potential of quantum computing. And it mapped on pretty well with conversations we've had in the past and the basic picture that I've formed. It, it did. It the, did. The, the major applications of quantum computing for the foreseeable future are going to be ones where the problem specification is largely quantum in nature already. And that could include drug discovery. That could include that could include material science. And uh, that could include finance as well. And that even though it's somewhat truncated, there still could potentially be trillions of dollars worth of value there. So I, it was it was great to kind of talk that over with her and, and get some clues as to where she thinks it's going to head. And then it was also reassuring to know that our Bitcoin are probably safe, that th there are possibly some things to worry about. But uh, at least with the algorithms that are available now, it's probably not feasible to just take all the world's Bitcoin. We might have to fork it at some point in the future and, and uh, shore up the uh, shore up the uh, security of it but because of Shore's algorithm. But for the, for now, we're probably going to be okay. I mean, our biggest our biggest danger is the fraudsters and the grifters and the rug pools. That that's uh yeah. that's that's the biggest danger in the space for now. Yeah, and also that quantum computing is not profitable at this point. Right. Uh, it it so people that are playing in the space, they're it's not like they're making tons of money right now. Uh, they're they're hoping that they will in the future, but it's not they're not there just yet, and so this is all being underwritten by a lot of grants, a lot of funding, a lot of research dollars, and uh, and those uh, that money uh, acts different and thinks different than lots of startup money. Well, profitability eventually, it's it's good enough for me. So I, I think the preamble has been long enough. Hopefully you profit from this episode, uh, number 120 with Anastasia Marchinkova. Tonight, we're joined by Anastasia Marchinkova. Anastasia has been a researcher at the Quantum Telecommunications and Quantum Optics Lab at Georgia Tech, the University of Maryland Joint Quantum Institute, and is currently working on superconducting qubits. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Anastasia, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yes, I'm excited to be here. 
let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on quantum computing. Yeah, I mean, sometimes this is a little bit of a disappointing story for people, honestly, because, you know, they're like, how did you choose the field of uh, quantum? Always been a science nerd, uh, did robotics in high school, went to a STEM magnet high school, um, really loved that. My dad's a physicist, but I didn't want not want to go into physics, actually, at the beginning. Um, I actually de declared as a computer science major in college and then moved into biology. Then I took physics one and I was like, oh no, I'm actually good at this. <laughs> so maybe I should actually look into physics, right? Which I guess genetics, you know, worked out in my favor that way. But I started looking around for research. So I'd already been doing research in chemical engineering and transdermal drug delivery. At that point, I realized that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. It was a lot of kind of mechanical testing work, you know, pipettes and stuff like that. So not really what I wanted to do. I realized that I wanted to use computer science as a tool and not as my main field of study. So that didn't fit entirely. So I started looking around for research positions. And a lot of people don't know this when they go into college. Uh, you can just email a professor and ask if they have research positions. You know, they don't always have it on their websites. Websites aren't updated for 20 years sometimes. <laughs> so just email and ask. So the first lab I emailed was a biophysics lab. They were doing um, motion of animals. So, you know, that was the cool lab with the lizards. But I believe the issue was they wanted third year students at that point. And I just finished my freshman year. They wanted you to take certain classes. Uh, the second lab I emailed um, was a quantum information and quantum optics lab. And they're like, you can solder. Great. Awesome. You're in. <laughs> Come in tomorrow. <laughs> And that's kind of how I got into quantum information. So it wasn't entirely by choice. I kind of looked at the professor and was like, this isn't, you know, they're doing stuff that's interesting. Um, I preferred working with a professor um, uh, that I guess was, wasn't quite at tenure yet because they tended to actually be in the lab. <laughs> if they get tenured, <laughs> you never see them again. Um, so, so I kind of picked in that way. And obviously, you know, with my father being a physicist, he kind of helped me a little bit in saying like, okay, these people, you know, here, here's how you read scientific papers. Here's, you know, how you can see what work someone is doing. So I did have a lot of, uh, you know, guidance in that way. Um, and then I got into the lab and I spent three years working in that same lab. So I was very lucky the professor wanted to get freshmen and he wanted people to stay in for a long time, which is not always common in undergrad research. They're like, oh, you need a checkbox to do your research you know, we'll give you a small project. Whereas my advisor wanted to keep us for a long time, uh, Dr. Alex Kuzmich. And uh, yeah, by, you know, second semester, he'd given me an entire room in the lab and said, okay, we're finishing up this project. We're building an entire project from scratch, design an ultra high vacuum system for our Rydberg experiments, right? And um, yeah, so, so I got a lot of freedom in that way to do the research and, um, do a lot of things on my own. Um, so, so it all happened because of your soldering skills. All happened because of soldering skills, which happened because of robotics, which happened because of, you know, <laughs> all these other life decisions I probably made, which is probably going to a museum when I was a kid. Loved the connects yeah. and the Legos, you know, making little robots. So yeah, you kind of, um, I always say, say kind of just take whatever opportunities are there, you know, even if you're not certain of it, which there I was like, soldering, great, I can do that. I mean, the first two months I spent building laser locking boxes and electronics, but I could contribute and uh, show what I could do. And then they let me do more and more things. Um, so I got to stay there for a long time and get 
a lot of research experience very early on. Well, yours will not be the first great career that came about as a result of serendipity and just random chance. Um, yes. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting story. I, I'm curious about your childhood. So I have a daughter and she's she's very, very smart and she likes tinkering with things. And so I'm trying to turn her on to the world of engineering. Did your dad do anything with you that sticks in your mind as being especially uh, noteworthy for having motivated you down that path or taught you those skills? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really just being around him a lot. I mean, so we moved to the U.S. when I was seven years old, didn't speak English, and a lot of um, our friends were PhDs, various, you know, countries. So we had a lot of very smart people in our midst. And actually, I remember at about, I was about 12 or 13 years old when I finally realized you don't actually have to get a PhD. Like, I thought that was required in life because everyone we knew <laughs> <laughs> so, that was the environment I grew up in and um you know my dad would take me to the lab right he would let me you know sit in the lab and play with you know tools and screwdrivers and be by his side um there's a picture of me on my desk with me climbing on our creostat when I'm I think I'm about three years old in that picture so it's funny being like okay three years old and 30 years old you know same picture still working on the same things but you know, he spent a lot of time with me and took me to everywhere he went to, you know, the science museums, again, um, you know, learning English and everything. My mom took me to the library a lot. I had the connects, um, you know, that that stuff. I was really kind of just allowed to play around and um, work on technology. And they really supported that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm always telling her she, she'll tell me something's magic. And I'll say, it's not magic, it's engineering. So I came in the other day and she was playing with this little train set and it had, uh, uh, you could change the track. So it pivots like this. So the train goes down different ways. And she's like, look, it's magic. I said, it's not magic, it's engineering. It's like, there's a little rod in there and it it connects. And I like grabbed her arm and I was like, see how I move it like this? And I was like, now you teach it to me. Explain to me what I just explained to you. Can you think of other examples like that? And she's like, yeah, it's like spreading peanut butter on toast. I'm like, you're... <laughs> You're going to be a great engineer someday, yeah. So hopefully, hopefully the same impact. Uh, I don't have a PhD. I don't know many PhDs, but hopefully, she she draws some of the same lessons. No, I think that's that's exactly kind of what my dad did. I remember, like in school, I thought it was the coolest thing. You you know, people from for show tell brought in the dogs, and I was like, my dad's bringing in this cool experiment that does like light things, and I was so proud of that. And I'm I, again like. Uh, I'm sure that was, you know, there was a reason I read books during lunch hour instead of, you know, interacting with people, but I thought that was so cool and I was so proud. And um, yeah, another thing my dad did is, <laughs> you, you know, I'd ask a question, he's, he'd be like, oh, great, go research it. And we're like, give me a book, right? And then, you know, he'd be like, tell me what you learned about what you read. And I'd kind of have to reiterate it back. So reading was also a very uh, early thing. Researching myself was a very early thing for me. So what, what, is, what is the gender balance in the quantum computing world? You know, I don't know. I tried to ask chat GPT that and it got very angry at me for, <laughs> you know, you can't take historical trends as like, like current thing. I'm like, okay, but you could try because <laughs> yeah, take a shot. Chat GPT. You could take a shot and like, tell me the last two years. Um, you know, I, in my physics degree, I was the only woman in my year out of 25 at the start. And then I think how many of us graduated? Probably less than 20. Um, the year above me had like three or four. For So for some reason, that year was a little better. 
you know, in quantum, there's a good amount. Uh, I couldn't put a percentage on it. I mean, it's definitely not 50-50 and you're close to that. But I think there's been a a lot of women going into the field. Um, I can tell you why. But it seems I like find, a lot. It seems like yeah. a, I've wondered that myself. Like, why are there so many? And, and, and maybe it's just survivorship bias. It just happens to be the people who've, who've blown up on social media or whatever. But of all the technical fields I know of, if I had to pick one that has the most women, it would probably be quantum computing. And I'm not sure why. Yeah, I think a lot of women. it might be because a lot of the quantum computers look like chandeliers and some people oh. are just attracted to chandeliers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, canceled. we're canceled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my thought. And then also another thing is because in the quantum, at least industry, you have to have so many different backgrounds. Maybe that's the thing, right? So a woman who has a biology or chemistry background can still work in the quantum space because they're they're using that degree and biology tends to have more women um you know with computer science having more you know there's there's maybe different paths to enter in that way so no it's fascinating but you're right because when I started I was like oh you know I could list off a bunch of women who were just amazing in the field uh that I could look up to and it just was normal for me which I think other fields don't often have that, that would be less the case. So speaking of quantum computing, uh, we were hoping that you could give us a five-minute overview of the field as you see it and where it's going in the future and how it will change the world. So five minutes, go. Go. Okay. Um, <laughs> so let's start with what quantum really is and what quantum computing really does. So quantum computing is really a new system of computing and it harnesses really two principles that are super important that are different the classical systems and that's superposition so the zero and the one everyone heard this analogy but you know a normal computer has a zero one zero volts five volts whereas uh, quantum computers can be in a superposition which is not equivalent to 2.5 volts you know um so that's one principle the other principle is entanglement and entanglement is very fun interesting tricky subject but really the idea is that the state the state of one thing can't be described without the state of the other so they're kind of linked in that way so we can do a lot of interesting calculations and a lot of new calculations by using these two principles now big thing about quantum computing is that uh number one it can't enable faster than the speed of light communication that's a huge thing uh, number two, it, it can, in theory, be applied to everything, but it's only faster for a certain set of problems. So what we're seeing is there, you know, probably around, I think, you know, we'd say 50 algorithms. Uh, there's the quantum algorithm zoo online that you can take a look at and actually look at all those algorithms where quantum could potentially have a speed up. So that's not going to fit all the problems in the world. So, you know, the first question I get on all my social platforms is, can this play Doom, right? It's like... <laughs> Okay, maybe one day it can. It probably won't do anything faster, though. So not really a point to doing that. But the cool thing about it is that the problems that it can be applied to are actually very broad-reaching. They're optimization problems. They're machine learning problems, uh, cryptography, um, things like that that can actually be applied to a lot of indus industries, quantum simulations, chemistry. Those can be applied to material science, pharmaceuticals. So even though there's a few number of algorithms, uh, there's a lot of potential applications that can come out of those. So that makes the field really exciting and why I think the field has developed in a very interesting way in that there's people of so many different backgrounds working in it, 
because you need that that background knowledge uh, to kind of figure out what the applications are. So that's kind of the basics there. With a quantum computer, you know, we're still kind of, I feel like, in the early stages, right? It's the 70s, it's the 80s. We have, you know, the ENYACs uh, that are coming up in the quantum space, and they can't really do much yet, right? You're hearing the same things. Um, I love Horizon Quantum Computing's uh, slogans that are like, oh, there's only room in the world for five computers total. We really don't know where the field will go. But they're huge right now. They're room-sized. <laughs> you know, they can't actually do anything faster. Um, we're starting to reach the point where we're seeing very interesting toy problems being developed that might have quantum advantage. Um, but it's early stage, so we're also kind of figuring out, you know, what to do. We're still in, I'd say, like the whole punch phase, right? You still kind of need to be a little bit of a physicist to be able to program these machines. The software ecosystem hasn't been built out. You're applying, you know, um, I guess now we've gone a little higher, we can apply gates, um, but there's still rotation gates, right? So it's not intuitive what that means. You're not writing, you know, if this algorithm does this, then whatever. You're saying, I'm going to rotate this qubit by this many degrees, or I'm going to apply this pulse, you know, at this frequency, you know, so we're still at a very, very early stage there. But so, so what, you're, what you're saying, though, is that quantum computers don't, um, they're not profitable yet. There's no ROI on a, a quantum computer. So which which industries do you think are going to be the the first profitable industries using quantum computing? The um, I guess the the typical answer is pharmaceuticals and finance because those are kind of near term applications in terms of uh, quantum chemistry and simulations, maybe materials. My joke is always that the first industry to benefit is the quantum computing industry because we're going to use the quantum computer to make a better quantum computer. So we'll very quickly hit that, you know, singularity, hopefully, and then, you know, get to that phase a lot faster. The quantum-ularity. Now, that didn't work as well as I thought it would, but uh, I, I don't want to coin new terms and, and clutter everything up. I, I'd, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on the near-term economic implications. So Matt Pines and I, he's a, he's a Bitcoin guy, and we had him on the podcast a while back, and he, he likes to poke fun at me by sharing these proofs that there can never be a general purpose quantum computer, and that therefore there's not that much alpha in the development. But I, I always reply that that's kind of irrelevant to the way I see at least the middle term economic development playing out. Because while it's common to compare quantum computing today to the vacuum tube hole punch era of you know yesteryear, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, the, the dynamics are not the same because quantum computing is emerging and maturing in a world that is already saturated with classical compute. Much of it shot through with these computational bottlenecks that can be solved with quantum algorithms. And so you don't need to have a general purpose quantum computer on desktops all over the world for it to work. You could have one startup with 20 qubits that aren't even that good, that are buggy, but that nevertheless are able to help Goldman Sachs speed up one part of a computational pipeline that takes a month to run because they're calculating the covariance matrix on a universe of stocks with a hidden Markov model. If you can speed that one thing up, like what is it worth to them? I don't know, but probably a lot of money. So I think the dynamics are different in a very interesting way. And I wonder if you had any comments on that. No, I think that's exactly right. And I don't know if I'm allowed to plug this, but that's exactly what I'm working on, right? I mean, I did transition in my career at some point, um, actually early. I think we were the first people to actually start talking about this and it's become more of a thing over the years. Quantum computers in general are application specific inherently, 
because of the algorithms that they that they're better at, right? So what our idea was when when we start working on this was, yeah, a pharmaceutical company doesn't care about doing financial applications. Like there there's no value in that, right? Um, and then we realized, yes, those bottlenecks in general uh, purpose quantum computers. So that's exactly what we started working on and saying like, look, if you're building a um, quantum computer for this certain algorithm, right? Every quantum volume measurement algorithmic cube, actually, I'm not sure if algorithmic uh, qubits has this, but I think quantum volume does, talks about the connectedness of the system. Yes. Every qubit has to be connected to everyone. However, if you know the algorithm um, that you're running and you're saying qubit one only ever has to talk to seven and 10, why bother build the rest of those connections if you can make it that much faster, which reduces you know, operating costs, increases the speed, um, uh, reduces all this complexity, right? That we can do. And, um, you know, the less error correction we have to do, the faster the algorithm goes, you know, we can really concentrate on making those, like you said, 20 qubits really good instead of a hundred qubits that are like meh. And then you have to do a ton of error correction. So that explodes, you know, another hundred X and then another hundred X, the deeper the circuit gets. Right. So yeah, those near-term applications I'm excited about because they are kind of shallow. Uh, so we also have a term, the shallow depth and the deep depth of circuits. Uh, deep is just, you know, lots of gates in order. Shallow is, you know, maybe more qubits, but, you know, there there's not as many in order. Shallow application on really good qubits could have a huge impact for those industries in the near term. So there, there might never be much economic pressure to centralize or consolidate in quantum computing, at least not in the same way. You, you might have conglomerates like you did in the 80s, where it's like 12 different companies that are nominally quantum, but really don't have anything to do with each other. But it seems like it's not that you couldn't have a quantum Microsoft, but that it wouldn't play out the same way. The space would be fractured in a different yeah. way. There'd be a lot more like specialized knowledge going into each one. And it'd, it'd be a little less legible from the outside, maybe. I don't know if you've thought about that at all. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I guess I think about it more as like the ARM model. Um or ARM. I'm I'm not sure which which one. People people change acronyms these days. Uh, what did I learn recently? There's one thing I was like 10 years ago in coding, this is how we pronounced it. Now it's changed. But um Is it GIF? Is it GIF or GIF? Oh no, no, it wasn't one of those <laughs> common ones, but it was something that just completely blew my mind. But yeah, so you know, the there's there's a lot of kind of the application specific, you know, chips out there. We just don't right. think about them, right? It's like what's in your iPhone, what's what's in the Google phone, you know, there's designs there that are quite different and they exist. Application specific is a thing. You just don't think about it because you're using your laptop and it automatically switches to GPU or CPU depending on its needs. But I honestly think that's even the future of the world for classical systems because I actually worked in uh, high performance computing for a while as well. I wanted to become a really good software engineer. Um, physicists are good coders, not great software engineers. And I knew that was a skill I really wanted to work on. So I worked on these algorithms and one of the things was just like switching the types of chips made the code run so much faster. You know, how do we play around with memory? How do we write code specifically for these types of chips? And we're getting to the point in the world where the amount of data we have, a lot of industries have not um, come to the point where it's a problem, but some have, and it's a huge problem. And they're hiring people specifically for this. The more and more data we get in the world, the more and more we're going to need that application-specific side, even in the classical space. So quantum computers, yeah, quantum computers today are are very large, are very big. How how long before we get down to a, a 
a smartphone size or even a watch size? Yeah, I, I get this question all the time. I'm not sure it matters. You know, again, talking, go, taking back to the economics, if you're looking at something, for example, drug development takes $10 billion to create a drug 10 years. If a quantum computer can save you $2 billion, you know, take, take the entire room, right? Like take the 10 foot by 10 right. foot square room. It's not really a problem. Um, you know, I, I do wonder what will happen in the future. I kind of do believe in human humans and our intelligence to get to the point where we might be able to do this. But right now, there's just not a ton of applications where that value would be in the individual consumer. It's still more in like the B2B space. The interesting thing would be kind of on the, you know, potentially on the encryption side, which is a little bit of a different technology than quantum computing. But that may be something like, what if you could have something small enough where you could actually do quantum key distribution on your smartphone? That direction might be really interesting. So the the key economic driver might just be post-quantum encryption. Uh, you, you just wouldn't have, yeah, it's, it's sort of the same thing I was referencing earlier, that there just would not be the same drive to, to miniaturize these things, because it doesn't matter, like you're exposing it over an API, or doing some sort of similar operation, so who cares how big it is, if it's in a giant warehouse, but it's insanely profitable, who cares, you know. Yeah, I've seen a lot of those um, marketing articles, like desktop quantum computers, and, you know, all this other stuff, and like but why <laughs> you know it yes just, but why pressing me need right now yeah <laughs> just just to say you have it i suppose uh yeah. hello this is trent fowler co-host of the futurati podcast one of the most common pieces of marketing advice i've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want one difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this none of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you our listeners to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Is there a general theory or a set of arguments around which kinds of problems yield best to quantum computing? Because I notice it's it's optimization, combinatorial optimization problems. It's anything involving differential equations. It's anything involving factorization and certain kinds of linear algebra problems. I'm not aware of anything that unites those other than just being thorny problems. But I don't know that I have the mathematical depth to really get into it. So I've always I've always been curious, like it, it, is there any way for me to look at a problem and say, yep, that's quantum, uh, that would that would be quantum advantaged, other than just to reduce it to this set of four categories, which if I could reduce it to one category, I always prefer to do that. Um, so I'm not a I'm not a theorist. I'm an experimentalist. I work with my hands. So this is definitely not going to be the most in-depth. Uh, but but the way I think about it is I always joke that. I actually really learned matrix math when I took quantum. So anything that can be kind of solved with a matrix type problem, I mean, even differential equations can be reduced in, in some way, in that way is potentially good for a quantum advantage. And that's kind of my my framework there because that's the math background of quantum. That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. I mean, a matrix operations power, God, I don't know, 70% maybe of mm -hmm. machine learning and data science and stuff that I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the trick on top of that is how do we actually represent 
what you're trying to figure out into a quantum state gotcha. you know so so one of the things people tell me i'm wrong about all the time is um breaking sha 256 right and i'm like there's no known quantum algorithm to break sha 256 which is great for some aspects of our security and people are like well, well no you're wrong there's grovers i'm like okay yes first of all grovers is a quadratic speed up so it's not you know completely um you know, we're going to completely shatter this, you know, you double the key size, you're going to be fine. It's the same level of encryption, but also I'm, I'm saying, you know, okay, but how, how, how do we take that problem and actually put it into Grover's? I'm not aware. I've seen some papers talking about, but like, how do you represent a number um, or like a string on a quantum state? That's what you have to figure out. Whereas, you know, if you want to do quantum chemistry, you're putting the quantum state of the electron onto the quantum state that's like a very natural way to put it in whereas like you're I looking see. at a string you're like how do, how do I actually do that I'm not aware of any you know papers at least in the quantum space that really talk about this I've come across a few and I'm like yeah it might be a fun idea um not but not sure like how we go from there so but why? <laughs> well, why, right? And then it's like, okay, well, it's a quadratic speed up. It's it's SHA 512 now. I see. And so we, it's, it's, we it's solved the so issue. For certain, for certain sorts of problems, you've got to transpose it into the key of quantum and the distance implied by that operation presents like a source of friction and a barrier to actually being able to solve it with a quantum computer. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're if you're dealing with quantum chemistry, it's just it is quantum. That's just that's the JSON payload that comes back. It's a quantum state. Right, exactly. So it kind of is way more natural in that way. I did see some papers talking about deep learning uh, for images, and there's some interesting way. I, I'm not sure exactly the details, but I remember they're kind of encoding the pixel onto the quantum state where you're like, okay, so you can say like XYZ rotations are RGB. Okay, maybe we could do something there. Not sure how, how that would work. Um, it wasn't kind of a massive paper, but it was something interesting where I was like, okay, I can maybe see how that would potentially work in the future. I, I have no idea how we'd go forward with SHA-256. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. I think there's sometimes a tendency of skeptics to see that quantum will be most applicable to quantum-specific industries and to conclude from that that there's actually not that much for it to do. It's like, oh, we'll have better, you know, quantum physics simulations. But I mean, that's just going to make a thousand nerds happy. Like the rest of us aren't <laughs> going to get much from that. Could you just briefly, in five minutes, could you could you briefly make the case that actually, even if quantum computing only ever found use in quantum chemistry or material science, that actually would still be a big deal? Do you have a TikTokized uh, uh, pitch for that? Yeah, I mean, materials affect everything. Basically, you know, Moore's law, let's start with Moore's law, right? One of the issues is heat from the transistors, right? What if we have a better material that gives off less heat? Okay, there's classical computing already affected. Faster flight, right? So one of the issues with flight is, you know, the temperatures, other things like that. New material, 
new alloys, um, you know, new materials for electric car technology. There's materials are everywhere. <laughs> so it kind of means that, oh, if we only do a quantum simulation, I mean, the world in some way is quantum at, I mean, it is quantum at the lowest scale, right? We just don't, um, we don't live in that world. We live in the classical world. So we don't think we're being affected by it every day, but we are, everything is quantum. And I kind of think of it like as the laser as well. So the laser began as not very useful technology. And now lasers are useful for everything. I love lasers. They affect my daily life every single day. But before that it was, yeah, the nerds technology, right? And uh, we definitely found a lot of uses for that. The, the stuff that excites the nerds has a tendency to change the world 20 years out. <laughs> Put that on a poster. So so there's a lot of misconceptions about what quantum computing will be good for. What Can you give us some examples of what some of the classical misconceptions are? Yeah, I um, talked to someone uh, last week about the Ansible in Ender's Game you know, again, with a faster than the speed of light communication. Uh, so that's a huge exception <laughs> all the time. Everyone's like, oh, did you read Ender's Game? I'm like, yes, the Ansible is kind of quantum, but this part, it completely doesn't work. Um, so that's one. Um, wow, I don't actually spend time thinking a lot about what quantum can't do these days. But um, I think it's been proven that in some ways it can do anything, but not necessarily better. Um, so not not faster than the speed of light communication is a major one. Um, let's see. Quantum is in the world, you know. So so we'll see we'll see what happens with that. My, my brother was was fretting the other day because he felt like you know a quantum su supercomputer might be able to do the calculations that would plan the whole economy. I was like, probably not, bro. Like I don't I think I don't think you have any real dangers in that regard. Yeah, that's true. There's there's all those factors, right? And yeah, actually, that's a, that's a big one that people say. They're like, well, it can simulate the entire universe. I'm like, okay, but then you need a quantum quantum bit for every single particle in the universe, which would it, it, that can't happen, or else the quantum computer becomes the universe itself. Like to actually it's just do the that one to one mapping, then then you're just living in the universe, right? Like, yeah, exactly. So I'm like, you know, maybe maybe some local interesting things that you could predict, but yeah, on that on that like largest largest scale, it's just you can't get there. So g given that you're not terribly worried about Grover's algorithm cracking the SHA two fifty six encryption that we all rely on, are our Bitcoin safe? Do we have to anything to worry about in that regard? Yes. So <laughs> in yes. some ways, yes. So there's a little well, bit mine's of... on Coinbase, so it's probably it's probably not safe anyway, but go on. <laughs> I, think, I think honestly these days Coinbase is the best place to have your money it's on. It's the only one that hasn't that hasn't collapsed. Uh it's the yeah. only one. Well, I mean Binance, Binance hasn't, but it's it's looking kind of ominous there. So <laughs> I guess I just by sheer luck I picked the right one. Exactly. So we'll see. So there's a little bit of a Again, there's a lot of technology underneath this, which is why also Bitcoin is so exciting to me. So the SHA-256 comes into place where you're actually taking the public key and you're creating a wallet address. So that's where the hash is applied. And again, this is for Bitcoin. This is not necessarily for you know a lot of the other uh, coins. I have a blog post that I wrote a couple you know evaluations of them, but there's so many out there these days. So that's one thing. However, the private public key pair is actually elliptic curve encryption in Bitcoin, which is crackable by quantum computers, 
much faster. That's an exponential speed up with Shor's algorithm. So that part is actually in danger. So there's a there's a couple of things that happen here. So when you send a Bitcoin, you basically sign your transaction because you only you have the private key, only you are authorized to spend your keys. In that transaction, the public key gets sent out and, and posted. That's fine these days because elliptic curve is very, very safe with classical computers. However, the idea is that you send that transaction, the public key is out there, and a quantum computer using Shor's algorithm could undo this elliptic curve encryption, get the private key, use that private key to, you know, maybe send the coin elsewhere. You know, now they have that signing permission to do what you can with, with the coin. So that's the thing. So even though the wallet address is hashed uh, with SHA-256, the public private key. So you're like, okay, well, it only happens when it's sent out and confirmation times are, are fast, right? So there's there was a paper, you know, factoring um, factoring RSA with 20 million noisy qubits. You're like, great, you know, and in, in, I think it was in eight hours. You're like, great, confirmation times are 10 minutes. However, in the past, we have had confirmation times of way over, you know, eight hours, days, weeks. Um, so, you know, that could have been a problem had a quantum computer existed. Then there's another level that, you know, not all <laughs> exchanges and coin like platforms are uh, changing the, the key every time. So maybe the public key that you sent out, you know, a while back is still valid these days and someone could reuse it. So some exchanges change this every time, some don't. Hopefully they will fix that and, and the big exchanges are, you know, using this kind of rotating key. But, you know, that, that's an additional issue. So you're saying like, oh, okay, so it doesn't matter if I've ever sent any Bitcoin, you know, then that key's exposed. And, you know, maybe that's um, a place where we could have an issue. So there's a lot of interesting kind of things into play here. I'm not an expert on cryptocurrency and what we'll do there. You know, my thought is, I mean, first of all, you'll have to change the encryption, right? But kind of what do we do next, right? So you create a fork, you know, the one with the new encryption, that's quantum safe. The old one, what happens to the old one? Does it just die off? Do we get save like, okay, um, you have a month to change over to the new chain with all your old coins. After that, we're going to make those invalid. Um, what happens to those lost coins? Because now we're seeing that maybe 25% of all Bitcoin have been lost, right? do we reissue those you know like th there's a lot of really interesting questions i'm really interested to see what will people will kind of debate on um in that quantum era what is the most exciting application of quantum computing in your view <sighs> in the near term for me it's kind of the pharmaceuticals you know um common answer it, it just feels a little nicer than finance. I love my finance friends, but, you know, I think, you know, medical industry making the world a little bit of a better place. Uh, and they know that, so that's fine. Um, yeah, I just think there's so many opportunities there, you know, won't get into the whole, you know, but like what, what value is there to curing the disease? But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of great benefits there. Again, I'm very excited about material science. I think that's just such a huge application. I actually took a few materials science courses in graduate school. So I, I, I just see how much work there is left to do there and what if a quantum computer could help with that. So that's super exciting. I'm actually not that interested in breaking encryption as weird as it sounds, because all the questions I get are about that because it's just destructive 
destructive, right? It's not creating value. So I'm like, okay, great. We break it. And, and so what, <laughs> you know, <laughs> did we create a value at that point? Um, so, so I think that's interesting. I'm really interested in those kind of fundamental applications um, where we can create a lot of changes and, and give, give other industries tools to really solve their problems better. With, with all the fighting going on over between Russia and Ukraine, is is quantum computing got a role coming up <laughs> in in future warfare? Oh, I don't know. Quantum definitely has. Uh, I've seen some very interesting quantum projects that DARPA has been uh, putting calls for proposals out to. Um, yeah, I, I mean, generally, um, I think, I mean, there's definitely uh, controls being discussed right now. I'm not sure if they've been released yet, but, you know, Quantum computing exports cannot go to certain countries. So people know this is a very strong technology and could have a potential future, which is, you know, to me, good, right? People are saying, you guys have been working on this for so many years and like, where are you? You haven't been doing anything, but the government really cares, which means they yeah. probably know something, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, they're, and they're putting their bets on it. A lot of people are putting their bets on it and we can't afford to not have that technology. So yeah, so we'll, we'll see uh, what happens over time there and well certainly the cryptography and encryption comes into play um yeah i'm just wondering if there's more beyond that yeah i mean so one of the things that's really interesting is that the u.s is very behind in china in uh, quantum key distribution technologies and we've always been for some reason that has been something that has not been funded as well in this country and China has gone ahead and made massive quantum networks. And that was my original research in, in my undergrad. So just seeing, you know, them creating like satellite QKD, free space, uh, you know, fiber optics networks going over, you know, thousands of kilometers because they see that as a future has been very interesting to me to see that we're not really looking at it. It's starting now. I'm finally seeing more and more funding going into it. Some new startups being formed, but this was just like in the last year or two. I've seen, I've seen progress on that and we're really behind. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Tell us a little bit about your consulting efforts. I saw on your website that you, you do some consulting. That's not something I know anything about, despite having followed you for a while. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, taking back to the original conversation, I was kind of just like, I take opportunities as they come. And even though I'm not sure I'll be good at them, you know, I've decided to do things. So, um, you know, my social platform, um, People are a little bit surprised. They're like, well, you blew up really fast on YouTube. Like you just got lucky. I'm like, yeah, you know, I did get a little bit lucky. I caught the algorithm at the right time. However, I actually worked for two years at Coursera and I was on the teaching and learning team. So I taught professors how to put their content online and how to teach while online. So I think that really helped me um, in the you know, when I started creating my own content and that happened just because of the pandemic and I was bored and I was like, well, I've wanted to try this. Let me just go see what happens. So that's something I really enjoyed. And I, I always wanted to be a professor when I was growing up, startups became kind of a random thing. I accidentally crashed the servers at Georgia Tech one night, long story. 
that's how I got into the startup startup game, basically. Um, but you know, it, it helps me. I I really do believe online education is the future. Um, one of the things I remember in college was I went to a research university, so professors did not really care about education. They wanted to do their research. They went and read the slides. And when I started working at Coursera, one of the best things was the fact that every single professor really cared about what they were teaching because nobody was forced into it. And we had this term, we called them learners instead of students because they're volunteers. They're learning for the fun of it. They're not getting a grade for it. And uh, yeah, so so I really do think there's kind of, kind of uh, a, a big future in kind of online teaching. We're going to continue growing that. I know there's some interesting talk now, like how do you prevent cheating with chat GPT? How do you actually <laughs> prove that someone's really doing what they're doing? Um, but yeah, so, so I've worked with some companies on creating online content, you know, teaching them how to do that. Um, just generally working on, um, yeah, consulting in the quantum space, uh, talking to venture capitalists. <laughs> One of my favorite things they email me, they're like, Hey, we saw your content. Um, we have a, we have a deck uh, from a quantum company. We have no idea what it says. Can you tell us what this means? And I get to talk to them a little bit, bit about the quantum space. So I'm just kind of, quantum is such a new field. There's so much to do. And um, yeah, I'm just excited to keep helping people and teaching more people about it. That's fantastic. Are there any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with? Quantum can't do faster than the speed of light communication. <laughs> Every single time. <laughs> no, you won't even believe like the Nobel Prize came out for Bell's Inequalities, which was a big part of my undergrad. And I just got so many nasty messages being like, you're wrong about this video because of the Nobel Prize. I'm like, guys, this this work was done like many, many years ago. This is something that's known. We didn't just discover it yesterday. And then the Nobel Prize came out like, holy shit, there's a Nobel Prize for it. Yeah. This changes everything. It's like, no, this is old work. This is old work. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm aware of this. I'm very aware of this. I've used this a lot in my day to day. No, no, no. I'm right. You're wrong. So I just want to leave with that statement because I'm I'm tired of repeating it. I think joked at one time was like, we just need a conference. We're just saying that over and over. Well, fantastic. We will do our part to get the word out as far as that goes. Thanks so sure. much for your time. And uh, this if, if somebody question. if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how do they get in touch with you? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so my website's kind of my home base, amarchinkova.com, exactly how it sounds. That's linked. My Twitter's linked. My Instagram is linked. My TikTok, my YouTube, all of that's on there. My email, my, you know, all my pieces of information are there. Okay. Fantastic. Hopefully you get the Futurati bump. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.